Well, I think my favourite words of that uh, Isaiah passage at this time of year are strengthen the hands of those who are weak, help those whose knees give way, say to those whose hearts are afraid, be strong, do not fear. Um, I reckon those are really good words for 10 days before Christmas. And I can first recall those words of Isaiah being spoken to me when I was in a group of uni students uh, here at Canterbury uh, by our chaplain at Bishop Julius, Margaret Wood. And I seem to recall it was just before uni exams. Be strong, do not fear. Our knees were a bit wobbly. But there are such encouraging words to us too at this time of year when we've had an... Uh, all the ads on the TV are urging us to be all sunlight and joy and bonhomie when we've had an awful week as a country uh, with the tragedy of the volcanic eruption on Fakari White Island. And it's yet another reminder, isn't it, of the fragile and shaky world we live in. Alongside all the more personal challenges we might be facing of family dynamics and who will sit next to who at the table and who we won't sit next to who, perhaps health issues, Christmas shopping, lists still to done, budgeting juggles at this time of year. Becky painted, didn't she, a wonderful picture from that prophet and poet Isaiah of the desert bursting into bloom after rain as life-giving water finally arrives. Humanity healed and flourishing, and the people are travelling home in one great joyful procession of celebration and singing. They'll travel in safety, we're told, with no ravenous beasts or lions to worry about. I can recall being asked to preach at a service for a lions club at one stage, and I looked up in my Bible concordance to find passages about lions. I thought that could be good, but I, I had to renege on this passage, no lion shall be there, I thought didn't seem a particularly positive message to extend to the lions club. Context, the reality for the people of Judah was that they were returning from exile in Babylon in the 6th century uh, before Jesus' time. And they were returning, we know, to a ruined city of Jerusalem. It was not yet rebuilt after its destruction. It was a city with no walls, no dwellings, no temple. Sounds a bit familiar. And yet they're called to travel in hope and joy, knowing that there are people who've been redeemed and ransomed by the Lord, who's been faithful to them in the past, and who will be present and faithful to them in the future. But it can all sound a bit idyllic to us, really, and yet I think it's balanced out today by one of the most poignant passages of the New Testament. Um, some of the gospel writers portray John the Baptist up there as a confident, compelling, out there, very out there, uh, declaimer of judgment, hellfire and brimstone. Uh, sort of a Mike Coleman sort of character. <laughs> on, a, on a good day. <laughs> on a good day there. Um, but today we're hearing about a very different figure, and I, I wonder perhaps one with whom we can empathise with as well. Because poor old John the Baptist by this stage is now in prison, and he's in the dungeon of Herod's hilltop fortress of Machairus, uh, which is just east of the Dead Sea in present-day Jordan. And I've been very near there, and I can tell you the temperature was near a 40 or 45. Maybe the dungeon was the coolest place, but not necessarily so. 
And we know that Herod Antipas had put John in prison because John was outspoken about speaking truth to power. Uh, and he had criticized Herod's immersion in a, in a quagmire of very dodgy family relationships. So here is John, the one who has grown up in and come to love the freedom of the wilderness, now locked up and confined in a tiny dark dungeon. And I imagine the effect is like for some, uh, as we've heard, those who've been locked up in detention centres who are just almost uh, and often just about giving up on life itself. So not surprising then that John now is plunged into gloom and depression. His mind is full of questions and self-doubt. Have I done what I was called to do in my life? Did I get it right? Did I hear God correctly? Has it really been worth it, this tough life out in the desert? Will it all just end in tears? Have I got it wrong? I thought I was doing the right thing, calling people back to God and announcing that the Messiah is coming. But when tough stuff happens in our lives, we can call into question everything we've known and trusted and committed our lives to also, even our faith. And so John, in his turmoil, sends his disciples, his remaining disciples, off to Jesus. And he says, ask him, are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for someone else? This Messiah that I've been announcing, have I got the right one, or have I got it wrong? And you can see the dilemma that John's in. The Messiah that he thought he was announcing was a severe judge who was coming in shock and awe, sort of um, Superman style, swinging his sickle, bringing judgment and justice and the vengeance of God against God enemies. And just maybe John was wondering whether that might mean taking out Herod and rescuing John from his dungeon. And yet the stories that have been filtering through to John in prison about Jesus are of a Messiah whose acts are of healing, of showing mercy and compassion, restoring those on the edge of society, teaching and preaching good news about the reign of God. It's been put this way. John the Baptist had wanted a tidal wave of a Messiah, but what John got instead was a steady drip of mercy from a man named Jesus, a steady drip of mercy. I love the way Jesus is so gracious and the way he responds to John. He doesn't criticize him. He doesn't put him down for his lack of trust. He calls John to look at the evidence in Jesus' ministry. And he answers in a code that John can actually crack. He says, the blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. And they're the very words foretold that the Messiah would do in Isaiah's prophecy we heard from Isaiah 35. So it was like a code. It was like a code sent through to John and saying, listen to this. This is who I am. It matches up. But then comes, I think, another very poignant, perhaps more personal note from Jesus. Blessed is anyone who doesn't take offense at me, who doesn't reject me. And we know there are many who are offended or challenged too much by Jesus and his ministry. And this is almost like a plea from Jesus that John's story not end in disillusionment or despair. 
I kind of hope that John was able to find some peace after this, that his work was done, that he could say to Jesus, is it okay if I hand over to you now? And John's end, we know it was brutal. But I hope and pray that John could yet have that sense of completion. In some way, it's John's own, it is finished, the work that I came to do. And I kind of hope too that word filtered back to John before his death of Jesus' final words that we heard in the gospel, which are a wonderful tribute to John. Yes, certainly he was a prophet and more than a prophet, really the greatest of all the prophets, uh, with shades of Samson and Elijah and Isaiah and Malachi, my messenger who will prepare the way. No human is greater than John the Baptist, yet the very least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John is. I think that's an awesome affirmation by Jesus of the greatness of his forerunner, John the Baptist. And yet there's something even more awesome, perhaps, when he says that gift is ours too, that even the least in the kingdom of heaven, our smallest children, us, we are greater even than John the Baptist. That is just extraordinary. And our gift at Christmas is to find our home in Christ with John in the kingdom of heaven. So I'm really glad that we hear this gospel about John the Baptist as part of our Advent journey up to Christmas. Um, to me, today's gospel, I like to call John's Blue Christmas. And tonight at Antioch, too, we're going to be thinking a little bit more about Blue Christmas, how it is when Christmas is an especially difficult time, and it's a chance to come together and find strength and hope together as God's people. So I hope that as we gather together in this last 10 days coming up to Christmas, we can bring ourselves just as we are, and good on you for doing that this morning. I love the words from O Little Town of Bethlehem, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And so we come with our hopes and also our fears, our faith and also our doubts, our joys, and we've lit the candle of joy, but also we can come with our sorrows, our happiness at seeing people again at Christmas, our acute sense of loss at the gaps that there might be around our Christmas table. And all this we bring, knowing the love of our community here, who promise, who know quite a lot of our journey and stories and promise to be with us just as Emmanuel is God with us. I came across a brand new thought to me yesterday about fear. And I hope it might be helpful to any of us who has fears for the future whether it's our own or for our family or for our country or for our world. And it's an interesting idea. Give God your fear, which is something that God does not otherwise have. I'd never thought of that before. Give God your fear, which is something that God does not otherwise have. Give God your fear, however it's wrapped up. That's your Christmas gift for God. Open your heart and your hands and offer to God your clutching fear. I invite you just to clench your hands together for a moment. Think of those clutching fears, maybe very deep within us, but then open 
your hands to God. Because that may be the very thing that makes room within your soul for the gift of God's provision to you to face whatever it is that is coming in the new year. So think of that clutching fear, let it go to God. God is the one who provides to face the future. So may fear today be replaced with joy. Amen.